How many of you were around in 1988? A few of you? All right, so good. About a month after my son was born, or our son was born in May of 1988, in June of that year, uh, there were some severe forest fires in the Yellowstone area, one of the, my favorite national parks. And uh, for the entire uh, 20th century, our national parks had adopted this philosophy, this approach, that if there was ever a fire, whether it was small or large, it didn't matter, every one of those would be extinguished. They, they basically said every forest fire is bad, and so they made sure that every forest fire was put out as quickly as, as possible. Some of you remember the, the commercials with Smokey the Bear, and it was a, a great program. Um, but that program created a, quite a problem because in June of 1988, uh, for over a hundred years, all these forest fires have been put out, and so there was all this underbrush in, in uh, the national parks, and that year there was a small fire in June, and the fires burned throughout the whole summer of 1988, and it wasn't until the, the snows of November that the last fire was put out. Uh, in the end, these fires had scorched uh, 1.2 million acres in the uh, greater Yellowstone area. And so, um, go ahead and, yeah, you can see that picture there. A lot of the land actually looked like that after these fires had gone through. And so, some of you guys remember that, some of you are a little too young to remember. But the problem that people had is that there was this policy that once the fires had actually started, they had, they had made a, a new uh, approach to forest fires is, you know, well, we're going to let them burn for a little while, and the, the fires began to burn and burn and burn. And so there were a lot of criticism uh, by the general public that basically said, you know, you guys have, because you've changed your policy, you've ruined this park. Our first national park has been ruined. It's been devastated. It's been destroyed for, you know, for, you know, centuries to come. I'll come back to that story at the end of the message. How many of you guys know about Paul Harvey's rest of the story? So I'm going to kind of do that and come back to that later. Most of you know that have been here for the last two weeks that we're in a series of messages from Daniel. And uh, Michael has introduced this uh, as we are cultural exiles. Just as Daniel and his friends were true exiles uh, in their day and time, we are cultural exiles as Christians in our, in our, uh, in our environment that we have, uh, that we live in. I want you to think about this, that uh, as, as Christians today, we live in a time, we live in a culture, we live in a world system that is not just um, unfriendly to our Christian values, it's hostile. Um, think about Daniel, though. Daniel and his friends were physical exiles. They had grown up in a culture that the Jewish beliefs were held to um, from everything that we can see about them, while the, the rest of Israel was kind of doing their own thing, Daniel and these uh, three friends were pretty committed, and their families were pretty committed to the Lord and to his word. Um, Daniel and his friends had been captured by the Babylonians. They had been exiled and taken some 900 miles away um, out of their hometown, out of their environment, out of the comfort of their home. They had been brought to a new setting where they had a different culture. 
They had a different language. They had different customs. They had, you know, an entirely different system in which to function in. You know, and as bad as this may sound uh, from the outside, you know, from us listening to this story, um, it sounds terrible. But from an outsider's stand, uh, point of view, like the Babylonians, they're looking at Daniel and his friends and saying, hey, you guys aren't, you know, you guys have got it pretty nice. This is not a, you know, a terrible situation. This is no, you know, this is not a situation where, you know, you're, you're uh, living in depravity. This, you're living in luxury. You're living in a, t- things, uh, in a setting that the king himself has picked out for you. From the inside, though, Daniel and his friends were almost in a prison. You know, these, these young men no longer had any say whatsoever about anything in their personal lives. Now, I know teenagers today, and I know uh, junior high and high school students feel like they're living in a culture of their, of very similar to Daniel. We have no say of anything. Our parents tell us what to eat, what to wear, when to go to bed, what, what to do. You guys have nothing to complain about compared to what Daniel and his friends went through. You know, think about this. They had been selected to go through a, the very best education that if, the, if you could have spent money on it, it would be the very best education that money could buy. They were going to be educated for three years in the University of Babylon in the, uh, in the, in the literature and customs and culture of uh, their captors. But I want you to think about this. At the end of those three years, you talk about a final exam, they were going to be evaluated by the king himself. He was going to give them the final exam to see if they passed or not. So this is, this is pretty important for that they learn their lessons. Um, think about this. If you were here in week number two, or I'm sorry, the first week, two weeks ago, Michael talked about how that their names, these th- uh, Daniel and his three friends, they had originally Hebrew names that pointed uh, to the one true God. But they get to Babylon and their captives change their names. They give them new Babylonian names that demonstrate a devotion to the pagan gods of, of, their, uh, of their captors. In verse 5, we read about how that the king himself had even changed their diet. You know, these guys had no say about anything that was happening to them. So basically, um, that is sometimes the way we're at in our culture. We're thrust into a work environment, a uh, situation in our community, a situation at home or at school that we have no say in what is being forced upon us, just like Daniel. You know, I want you to think about this. These guys, they weren't just in a culture that was unfriendly to their Jewish beliefs. They were in a culture that was hostile to their Jewish beliefs and to their Jewish gods. I mean, they had a lot of things happening, changing to them. It kind of sounds like our culture today. So my question for us is, how was Daniel and his friends going to survive this new situation? How were they going to survive? How were they going to live through this? These were young men, maybe 15 years old. How were they going to survive this, let alone thrive? That is what I want us to talk about today. That is what I want to kind of put before us today. Not just surviving in our hostile environment to the Christian beliefs that we hold, 
but actually thriving through those. I want to introduce you to something that uh, uh, is an acronym, and it's called VABS. Values, Attitudes, Behaviors, and Belief Systems. You know, our values, our attitudes, our behaviors, and our belief system, or our worldview, should be rooted in the teachings of God's Word. It should, be, it should look like what we see put forth by God's truth, by God's, God's Word. It should be. And yet our culture, the world that we live in, has a vastly different VABS, don't they? And it, all it takes is, you know, five minutes in, a, in certain work cultures, five minutes in certain uh, surroundings where you're with friends or neighbors or, you know, people that, that don't know the Lord Jesus. And in five minutes, you can tell very quickly their VABS are very different than your VABS and should be. But why shouldn't they be? They don't know the Lord. You know, and just like Daniel, none of us usually have the, the position, the authority to do anything about that setting. Something else that's pretty interesting to me as I think about this. The world that we live in, the culture that is hostile towards Christianity and, and the beliefs that are put forth by God's word has no qualms, it has no problem of forcing us into uh, conformity to their systems, does it? I mean, it does not hesitate. All you've got to do is stand up or stand out for your beliefs, and it's okay. And this is the thing that seems very strange to me. It's okay that you can stand up for your beliefs, but as soon as you stand up for Jesus... You get bambosted. I mean, you just get hammered by our culture. How are we going to thrive in this environment? Well, I suggest that we follow the instruction of Daniel. The, the example that he and his three friends put forth. So I invite you, if you've not turned to already, turn to Daniel chapter 1. And I want to talk about, I want us to look at Daniel's example. Now, Daniel chapter 1, and we're going to start reading in verse 8. And the first point that I want to make is, thriving requires my resolve. But Daniel resolved that he would not, be defiled, would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that the king, he, drank. He resolved in his heart. I want to talk about some of these Hebrew words that are here. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I do know that there's something unique about what's being portrayed here. This word resolve in Hebrew is really not a single word. It's a phrase. It's a combination of words that have been strung together that have been translated the word resolve. Most of us know what resolve means, but here's what it really means in Hebrew. It means to make up one's mind, to determine one's heart. And that is really the phrase in Hebrew. And then it's just condensed into this word resolve. Daniel had determined in his heart that you know what, you guys can do all these changes in our life, but dude, we are going to draw the line here. The line is drawn here. We are not going to cross this. And if we are going to determine that we are going to thrive and not just survive in our culture, we've got to begin with resolving in our heart, determining in our heart, enough is enough is enough, and no further will I go. The word defile, he says that he would not defile himself. Is also an interesting Hebrew word. 
every time it occurs in the Old Testament, it, it refers to either moral or ceremonial uncleanliness. So Daniel basically was saying, what this is saying is, Daniel had made up his mind he would not be made unclean by this food. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Everything on the outside had changed for these guys. Everything. Their captors had changed everything in their life. But Daniel and his friends said, you can change everything, but you are not going to change our hearts. Daniel and his friends said, we're not going to do this. And we have to begin at this point if we're going to thrive in a culture that's hostile towards Christianity. Hostile to our vabs. We have to begin here. Daniel and his friends probably said something like this to themselves. To themselves, you might change our names, but you are not going to change our loyalty. You are not going to change our, our, our identity. You may change everything in our surroundings, but you are not going to change who we are and what we have determined in our hearts to be. I wonder if we could say the same thing. Let me talk about some of these food facts because um, it sounds like this thing is all about this big deal of this food. So let me talk about these food facts. Surely this food was great food. Surely it was T-bone steaks, you know, and you know, great pastries and everything else. So what was the deal with this big food? Why wouldn't these four Hebrew students, why wouldn't they eat this? Well, I'll give you a couple of things to think about. It was likely that they had uh, been served pork or even horse meat. And before you turn your nose up to horse meat, you might want to try it. It's not as bad as you might think. I'm not saying I've tried it. You can, you can, <laughs> you can determine that on your own. I've eaten a lot of kinds of meat. This meat was likely not prepared properly. It probably didn't have the blood drained like it was supposed to. But the biggest problem with this, this food, not just the meat, but all of the food and the wine, was that it would have been offered to the pagan gods first. It would have been offered, it had been, a, it had been an offering to their pagan deities, and then it would have been given because it was served to the king. Then it would have been taken off the king's plate or the king's uh, chef's uh, area to these guys, to these young men. Each of these things were forbidden for God's people or by God's people in the Mosaic Law. And that's why Daniel, the, it wasn't just the food. This is not about physical food. This is not about the way the meal was prepared. It was about that this food had been sacrificed or offered to these pagan gods. And because of that, Daniel and his friends, if they would have partaken of this food, they would have made themselves both morally and, and ceremonially unclean. You know, it's just like this. You know, Christian students go off to secular colleges, secular universities or schools. Our kids went to a, a, a state university here in, in Missouri, and I know how it plays out. You know, you go to a secular school, you're taught things that you know go against God's word. You're taught evolution, you're taught about uh, uh, morality, you're taught uh, immorality, uh, you're taught about um, uh, uh, identity and that you can identify as whatever you want. 
Daniel and his friends were going to be graded over these things, just like the Babylonians were going to do to them, so is done to students in state universities. And it was, it's one thing to learn what you need to learn to pass the test. It's a totally different thing to embrace what you're being taught. And just like Daniel and his friends had to say, you know what, enough is enough. We will learn the language, we'll learn the culture, we'll learn, the th we'll learn what we're taught uh, by our instructors so that we can pass the test. But that doesn't mean that we have to believe it. It just means that we have to know it to pass the test. Daniel and his friends basically said, you can teach us this stuff, but we're going to hold true to God's word. We're going to hold true to what God's word says, and we will not disobey this. But I can hear people. I can hear some of Daniel's friends. Because it wasn't, if you read closely, it wasn't just Daniel and his three friends. There were a whole group of these students, young people, that were involved in this, um, I guess, spiritual indoctrination uh, of the Babylonians. There were a whole bunch of them. And I can just hear it now, some of those other students say to Daniel and his friends, Daniel, dude, what's the big deal, man? It's only food. I mean, why not? Dude, you're, you're not under Mosaic law anymore. You're not even in, uh, you're, you're not in Jerusalem anymore. You don't live there. Dude, you're not even in Israel anymore. Why are you making such a big deal about this? Daniel, your parents are never going to find out. Have you heard that before? Daniel, if you have a wife, she's never going to find out. You can do this and no one will ever know. 